You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. That was beautiful, thank you. Um, for those of you that are not aware, um, that's a song called Via Dolorosa. Um, and the lyrics are basically that of the gospel, that on the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, came a lamb called the Messiah, Christ the King. And he walked that road for you and for me. And the really heavy parts were the parts song where it talks about how he took the nails for you and for me. So this morning, as we hear about King Jesus, we recognize that he wasn't just the happy-go-lucky Messiah who went around and had campfires with his disciples and who told jokes and made friends and healed people, but he was walking with an intention. He was intentionally walking his entire life to go to the cross to die for the sins of the entire world. That's why he's a good king, right? And that's why it's called Good Friday. We'll talk about that a little bit today. This morning, we are in the book of Matthew, right, Um, as we will be for the next year and some change. Uh, We are in Matthew chapter 6, and we will be... um, We'll be talking out of two passages in chapter 6 this morning. Uh, we'll be talking out of verses 1 through 4, and then skipping the section on prayer, and going verses 16 through 18. So for me, they're all on the same page. In your Bibles, you might have to turn the page. I'm not quite sure. We are not permanently skipping the prayer passage. We will be returning to that the week after Easter, uh, but we'll be spending a message to that uh, on its own. Today, we'll be talking about two things. And, uh, and I'll just go ahead and read verse 1 for you, then we'll pray and we'll dive into the scriptures. Um, verse 1 reads like this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Lord, this morning as we study your word, uh, would you speak to us as a king speaks to subjects? encouraging us with the words that you would have to say to us, challenging us. Lord, may we leave from here more like you than we were when we came in because we've heard and responded to your word. We give you all the glory for the things that you're doing in our life, and we pray that you'd open our hearts and minds and ears for the things that you'd have us understand this morning. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so this passage picks up on the tail end of what we talked about last week, this idea of perfection, right? Um, The tail end of verse 5, or chapter 5. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I talked about that, I think that was last week. And I struggled with this verse because that's a very high standard to me. And I struggled with it and struggled with it. And then the Lord gave me this understanding that it's not that I achieve that perfection on my own, but that God gives me his perfection, that he lived a perfect life, and that he enables me then to walk closer and closer with him day in and day out. So on the heels of this idea that we are to be perfect as Christ is perfect, that King Jesus is our perfection, that we are to be more righteous than the Pharisees, that's all the end of chapter 5, Jesus says this, beware of practicing that, in front of other people so that you would be seen by them. If you do it to be seen by them, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So it seems like you read the book and he takes you one direction and he's like, be perfect, be perfect, but don't let anybody see you being perfect. 
And so it's this journey that he's taking us on to develop in us a character of righteousness. And in this verse today, he's going to talk about two ways of attempting righteousness. One is works righteousness. It's a false gospel. It's in the sense that we try and do it on our own. I will work. I will become. I will do it. I will look good. I, I, I. That's works righteousness. It's what I do for myself. But there's also something called faith righteousness in that we understand, apart from God, we are nothing and have nothing. And because of Jesus, we are made righteous, but not because of ourselves. And King Jesus continues this discussion in chapter 6 to talk about three, um, three spiritual disciplines, giving, prayer, and fasting. Like I said, we'll talk about prayer in two weeks. Today we're going to look at what he would say about giving and fasting and how those things might grow in us the character of Christ, might develop us to be more righteous after his own heart. And he explains in using these two examples the two different types of people who believe in God but that might struggle with work righteousness or have faith righteousness. He calls people who have works righteousness hypocrites. Um, As we read this passage um, this morning, you'll see that Jesus is using really strong words. And it's okay to use really strong words when you're the Lord of the earth. And it's okay for Christians to use really strong words when we're quoting Jesus. These aren't bad words. We, We talk with my daughter all the time because she's just getting to the age where things are no longer black and white, you know. Um, And so she's starting to understand that some words are okay in some contexts and not in other contexts. So when is it okay to say the word fool, she asked us the other day. And it's okay to say something is foolish. That was a a foolish joke. It was silly. It it means silly and it's not um, derogatory. But to call someone a fool would be derogatory. Same word, different usage. Um, And so we're trying to walk our daughter through understanding strong words and good words and bad words and appropriate usages. Jesus is using very strong words. If you walked up to someone today and said, you're a hypocrite, is that well received? No. Is that politically correct? No, Jesus does it, and I think we could learn something from Jesus. He does things very lovingly, but he speaks very strongly in these passages this morning. He's speaking to people, um, to his disciples, but overhearing his words are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and even amongst his disciples are some that might be struggling with hypocritical actions or thoughts. And I would say to us this morning, um, we all strive to follow Jesus. We want to be more like him. But we must not ever read the word of God and say, oh, when he says hypocrites, he's not talking about me. We must always read the word of God and go, oh, Jesus is talking to me. Where might I look like that? And how might he help me fix that? So as we read the word, I ask that he would um, open our hearts and our ears and our minds to this. So this is what he says in verses 2 through 4, and then I'm going to jump to 16 through 18. When you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they can be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving might be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16. 
And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their face and their fasting is seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be seen by others, but only by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So I was studying these passages like I always do, and I didn't bring it. It's on my desk. Um, I printed off the verses in large type print so that I have room to circle and highlight and make notes and learn because this is a teeny tiny little Bible. I can't um, make all the notes that I want to in the margins here. And so I have this piece of paper and I'm marking up all my Bible and I have these two sections side by side in two columns so they fit on one page. And I realized as I'm going through these passages that they are identical except for one is about giving and one is about fasting. But there is a pattern to these two sets of verses, and they are formulaic. You just remove giving and insert fasting, and they say the exact same things. And so when Jesus says the same thing twice, we might ought to want to pay attention to what he's saying. It's like when parents tell their children something once, it's important. Tell them twice, okay, really pay attention. If he says it a third time, Whoa, okay, I mean, there's like highlighted neon signs, big arrows, okay, bells are going off to pay attention. Jesus does say this three times. We're only looking at two examples this morning. Prayer is the third, and we'll handle that in two weeks. Um, Jesus uses these two passages to explain how the actions of the heart and the actions of the hands are related to worship. And our righteousness. Um, There's three things this morning that King Jesus wants to uh, reveal to us from the word. The first is, uh, so when? Did you catch that at the beginning of these verses? So when? So when you give to the needy, dot, dot, dot. So when you fast, dot, dot, dot. Okay? Um, we skip over insignificant words in the English, right? So and when have really no bearing on our daily lives, right? Um, Words are important. These words in the English language we often skip over because we want to get to the important part. What is he talking about? Giving. Or what is he talking about? Fasting. Or what is he talking about? Prayer. But so when are very important. Meaning... When we as followers hear the words and look at our life, we need to do what Jesus is telling us to do. Jesus does not give us a flimsy start to this dialogue. He does not say, if you choose to give, if you want to fast, if you pray. He says quite clearly, when you give, when you fast, when you pray. What does that mean? We ought to be doing it, right? He is, he is basically telling the disciples, by the way, this is what disciples do. He's not being mean. He's just kind of sticking it in there casually. So you tell your children similar things. So when you're cleaning your room, don't forget to put the socks in one drawer and your toys in the other drawer. The implied understanding is you're cleaning your room. There's just some instructions I have for you about that. When you give. It means you should be giving as a disciple. When you fast, it means you should be fasting as a disciple. 
the implication is that Jesus means for his disciples to be doing these things as part of their regular life. And there's not necessarily a specific way and style of doing these things. He's not talking about juice fasting versus fasting from technology, okay? Modern world gets all things convoluted. Jesus is simply saying you might want to consider fasting because it's a good thing for disciples to do. Giving is something disciples should do. Am I telling you how to give specifically at this moment? Not, not in great detail. I'm just saying you should be probably doing this. And if you're not, here's a gentle reminder. He's not talking about juice fasting versus fasting from technology or, or giving money versus giving time. He's simply making a broad statement about disciples and the character of disciples that they are givers and that they make a discipline of fasting. It doesn't mean you should fast every day. Okay, I just want to say that. That would be detrimental to your health and that's not what Jesus is talking about. But what does Jesus mean when he says that disciples are givers? When you give. Well, he says a few things. Let's read it. He says this. When you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet like the hypocrites do in the streets so that they can be praised by others. But when you give to the needy, your right hand and your left hand shouldn't know what's going on between the two of them. So that what you're doing is in secret. A little secret service here, guys. Jesus is saying, um, giving is important, but you don't want to toot your horn. And some of you might be thinking that this passage is on money. A lot of our culture says that whenever the word give is in the Bible, it means immediate pocketbook. Okay? Um, And some people don't like to come to church because they think all the church does and all the pastors do is get up and say, we want your money. God wants to take your money from you. And that's not what this passage is about. Jesus um, wants us to understand that giving can encompass all areas of life. But this passage might surprise you. He's not primarily talking about giving money. He is talking about giving, but he's not primarily talking about giving money. He's not teaching about tithes in this passage, a word that Jesus would say is 10% of your income. He's not teaching about that. And while a tithe is a good thing to do as a disciple of Christ and act of obedience and faith and maturity... It's not what this passage is speaking about. This passage isn't about tithes. It's about giving. The word in the original language for giving here is about acts of compassion, acts of mercy. Something we should also consider doing if we're disciples of Christ. You see a need around you, perhaps in your oikos, and then you meet the need. You give so that the need is no longer a need. You are moved with compassion for what vacancy you see in the life of someone else. And you go, oh, I can take care of that. Let me help you with that. And then you meet the need. Jesus is talking about giving your time. Maybe you've got a single mom on your block. I'm throwing out random examples here. Maybe you've got a single mom on your block or a young family that live next door to you. And they've got lots of small children and You remember from your days of having lots of small children that things can get crazy. So you say, I will babysit for you guys. Go out and have a night to yourself. You're meeting a need in love. And that kind of thing demonstrates a lot to a single parent or a young family. 
Maybe your elderly neighbor has a flat tire. And you're like, well, I can fix a flat tire. Well, go fix the flat tire. Give some time and some elbow grease and fix a flat tire. There are lots of needs around us. And Jesus is saying, disciples, when you see the need, give so that it would be no longer a need. He's talking about giving tangible things as well. Maybe you know someone who's struggling with a life issue. A spouse has passed away or there's a great crisis in someone's family that you know. And they just haven't had time to take care of the basics. So maybe you just pick up some groceries for them and drop it off at their house. Now, maybe you lend your car to someone whose car is in the shop and they have three kids and a baby on the way and they need reliable transportation. Lend them your car. It means that when you are a giver, when you are giving, you are being perfected by Jesus and living as a faithful disciple in the world, not of the world. And you're going to see those needs with the eyes of Jesus and meet them in that moment. This is the beautiful part of this passage. This is what I love so much because this means that it's not about me or the church. It's about you as a minister of Christ wherever you are, right? Because um, when you are out in your world talking to your people, seeing needs, um, there's no program by which you go to meet that need necessarily. You don't have to go to a church discussion and see if you can meet that need. You don't need to call the ministry leaders. You don't need to call a board meeting. There's no need to call me and see if you can meet that need. There's no red tape that gets in the way of meeting the need. There's no hindrance of the spirit in that moment. There's simply you as a believer in Jesus and someone who has a need, and that's the perfect equation to fix the need in that moment. So when you give, just do it. Just see the need and fix it in that moment. Um, in college, we had a professor who called situations like, just put out the fire. If you see the fire, put it out. Don't go run away and try and find a bigger. Just If you have a cup, just put the fire out. So when you see the need, fill the need. We as Christians are all priests. We are all ministers. It's not just me who does the work of the church. I am the one who jabbers at you on Sunday morning with the gospel, Right? But my job is not to win the entire city by myself. My job is not to um, necessarily preach the gospel to everyone who comes so that they would be saved here in this building. Um, My job is not to be the one who sees all of the needs and knows all of them because somehow I'm the all-knowing pastor. I'm not. Okay? I don't know all of the needs. You guys know the needs of the people around you, and I know the needs of the people around me. And all of us are ministers in the name of Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore... Wherever you are, when you see the need, you can meet the need. And if the need is greater than you can meet on your own, that's a great time to come to the church and say, here's a need that I can't overcome on my own, but it's huge. Can we do something about it? Yeah, this is what the church exists for, to meet needs. And so we want to do that as well. But what Jesus is talking about is being a Christ follower who sees a need, is moved with compassion for that, and gives appropriately to meet the need. Your giving is an outward demonstration of God's love and generosity to a lost world. Do you get that? What you do is a demonstration of God's love for the world. You are loved by God, right? You get an amen there? You are loved by God? Okay. And he has graciously given you more than you need so that when a need arrives, you are prepared to give. So everything that you have is not just for your consumption, God gives you what you need and then above and beyond that so that as you steward what he's given you, when a need arises, you have the availability to say, 
I've got extra cash in the bank. Let me take care of that for you. It's no problem for me to fill your tank or buy your groceries or I'm going to babysit because I've managed my time well and I can take care of that for you because I've... We are to give out what we have received from God. And when you do so, you're to demonstrate and verbalize the love of God for the people that you're ministering to. This is different than doing it in secret, right? If you're giving groceries to someone... You could leave it on their doorstep with a little note that says, God loves you. That's okay. You can also walk up to them and knock on the door and say, you want to know what? God loves you so much, and he just wants you to know that, and here's some food for your family. That's okay. What you don't want to do then is get in your car and roll down the window and yell down the street, I just gave groceries to a needy person. I'm so great. Okay? You don't go home and put it on Facebook or Twitter or hashtag Greatest giver, me, okay? You don't do that. Giving in secret doesn't mean broadcasting, okay? You don't broadcast it. But the people that you give to, it's okay if they know that you're meeting the need. That's acceptable. But what about fasting, okay? Now, where am I? God is not a giver, he's a taker. I'm behind here. Okay, so God is a giver, not a taker. We're to be givers, not takers, just like Jesus. Um, Acts of mercy or acts of compassion. Seeing a need. Meeting it in that moment. Okay, we talked about those things. And then here we go. Fasting. Not a diet plan. I, I can't even comprehend what culture has done with biblical fasting. There are books up the wazoo in every bookstore on Christian labeled bookshelves that say, here's the diet from Daniel, and here's the fasting plan to get healthy in 10 days, and here's the this and this and that. And uh, listen, it's great to get healthy. Eat healthy. God wants you to eat healthy, okay? Um, But fasting is not about losing weight. Fasting is not a diet plan. Fasting is not a fad. Fasting is not a popular thing to do. just, Just ignore what culture says about fasting, please. Fasting is a private discipline of a Christ follower. It helps you grow in maturity and to be more like Jesus. The point is to become more like Jesus not to have shinier hair or stronger nails or whatever it is that culture would tell you it's about. And fasting is done for many reasons in Scripture. And it's an act of worship, just like giving is. I want to read you some examples here. Reasons to fast. Have you ever considered fasting for these reasons as I read them to you? Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Now on the 24th day of the month, uh, the people of Israel were assembled... And they were fasting, and they were in sackcloth, and they put dirt on their heads. And they separated themselves from the foreigners, and they stood, and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood in the place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped God. People fasted because they were sad about their sin, and they said, we recognize we lived in such a way that wasn't appropriate. We want to fast and we want to hunger for God. We don't want to hunger for our own appetites. Mourning over your sin, completely appropriate time to fast. What about for leaders? We studied Esther a few months ago, right? We've read this verse. Esther 4, verses uh, 16 through 17. Esther said this, Go gather all the Jews that are in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my young women will fast also as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. 
And Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. The nation of Israel gathered together and fasted on behalf of their leader, Esther. They went before God and they said, Lord, we want what you want and we want you to be with our leader. We are going to fast and pray for our leaders. Do you guys fast and pray for the President of the United States? When you fast, do you fast and pray for your governor, your mayor, your boss? Do you fast and pray for your church board, your pastor? Do you fast and pray for Billy Graham when he does those crusades? Do you fast and pray for your leaders? What about making decisions in Acts 13, verses 1 through 3? It says this. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who is called Niger, Lucius, a Cyrene, um, and a member of the court of Herod, Tetrarch. While these people were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they had a decision to make. Who do we send? Let's fast. Let's go before the Lord. And then, like we read at the end of Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 3, they commissioned them. And they did that again in Acts chapter 14. When you send people off... Um, verses uh, 21 through 23, it says this. When they preached the gospel to that city, they'd made disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them in the faith, saying that through tribulations we would enter the kingdom of God. And then they appointed elders in those churches. And with prayer and fasting, they committed those to the Lord, those who had believed. So here's what happened. They prayed and they received an answer while they were fasting. They commissioned those leaders. Those leaders went out and planted churches. And they commissioned those churches through prayers and fasting. New believers were saved in those church services. And they called those new believers forward and laid hands on them. And prayed and fasted that those new believers would stay strong in the faith faith, despite what persecutions might come. Do we do that? We should do that, right? This is good stuff that we should be doing. What about knowing God's will? Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, right? We read this just a few weeks ago. Maybe we didn't pick up on what Jesus was saying. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he fasted. He fasted to know the will of God. He fasted to draw closer to the Lord He fasted so that he would know hunger for God more than he would know hunger for the things of the flesh. These are really good reasons to fast. It's designed to deny your body something physically that it needs so that when the sensation of craving comes about, hunger and growly and, you know, the hunger pains that come about, when that kicks in, you're motivated To have hunger for God. Do you think my physical body's hungry? This is supposed to remind me how I'm supposed to be hungry for God. So instead, you turn 
that period of time you turn your mind and heart towards God to renew Him, to renew in yourself Him. There's that beatitude, right, that we read that says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't you just love how he started the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, and then all through the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps hitting on these same themes. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. We don't do that if we're completely satisfied in our own flesh. We need to deny our flesh at times so that we can truly hunger and thirst. Fasting has scripturally been from food. We've read these. They fasted from food. Okay? There are also other places in Scripture that will talk about other types of fasting to be done at special times and places in life. But today our culture uses fasts as a diet plan so that we can get healthy faster. That's not what it means to fast. Um, There's nothing wrong with eating healthy, but the point of a fast is not that. The point of the fast is worship. The point of the fast is to draw closer to the Lord. So when Jesus says, when you fast, he's saying it is part of the healthy, natural, regular life of a disciple. It's important to learn to crave something like the presence of God more than you crave food, more than you crave TV, more than you crave relationships, more than you crave, insert what you crave. Fasting is a reset button for our souls to remind us what we truly need to live, and that's God. So he's saying, when you do these things as part of your normal life, but it's not just that we do them with our hands, right? Here's the second thing we need to pay attention to. Jesus wants our hearts, not just our hands. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. That's just the work of the hands. And Jesus explains that there's a difference between hands and hearts in the life of a believer. Hands can perform any action, but the heart matters more because it's out of the heart that worship comes. It's not what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the heart. Okay? So Jesus is talking about worship when he talks about the hypocrites who seek their own fame. They're worshiping themselves. Anyone can give, right? It's not a Christian thing. Any Christian or non-Christian can weaken into their pocketbook and give money, can buy groceries for someone else. There are great moral organizations that do not have a foundation of Christ that do good work, right, with their hands, but that's only one side of it. Anyone can give. Anyone can fast. But what's your motivation behind those things? Is it for God's glory and the good of your neighbor Or is it for the satisfaction in your own heart that people know what you did? Um, Facebook is just chock full of people tooting their own horn. I'm guilty of it on occasion too, right? Um, We do this all the time. We casually slip in, well, I got to do such and such for someone the other day, and it was great. They were so happy. I'm glad I could bless them in that way. But when you're saying that among a crowd of people, your service is no longer secret. Um, And Jesus says, Hypocrites get the reward that they earn, and that is the extent of their reward, the praise of man. Have you ever known a person who had to always get credit for what they did? Like, always? They always had to get the last word in and say, wait, but I did this, or I did that, or... They had to say how much that extravagant gift cost, and they milk every situation for the praise of their awesomeness. Uh, There are people like that in the world. Sometimes Christians can act like that. And Jesus calls those people 
hypocrites. He uses a very strong word. You're hypocrites. Can you imagine Jesus, loving guy, very um, gentle, meek and mild, and then he comes out with words like, you're hypocrites. You're a brood of vipers. Your parents are the devil. Um, He said these things to the people who followed him so that they would have a check and go, wait a minute, I've stepped out of bounds. And so he says, those of you who toot your own horn, who do the work with your hands but not with your heart, you're a hypocrite. When you're doing a good deed for the glory of man, you're robbing God of glory and you're hypocritical of the faith that you claim. Scripture is clear all over the Psalms, right? Ascribe to God the glory that is due to him. All of creation gives praise to God. It's all over the Psalms like that. Nowhere does it ever say, all creation should give glory to Peter. He's so awesome. Ascribe to me the awesomeness that is me. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible for you either, okay? Ascribe to God all of the glory that is due to him. But we rob him of glory when we try and take it for ourselves. Hypocrites will do a good thing with their hand, and they will promote it for self-glory. And it might even come across like humbly, you know? You know, I was just able to do such and such for so on, and I'm so glad that I had the time and the money and the finances and the wherewithal to even notice the need that nobody else was noticing. Praise God that I was able to take care of this for them. We, we talk like that sometimes, and we ought to caution ourselves so that we don't hear Jesus say to our face, be a hypocrite. That was not about me. That was about you, and that's dirty, rotten, fool. You shouldn't do the things like that. Jesus might say some of those things to us one day. Disciples of Jesus, though, who follow after him in true humility, do good deeds for the glory of God and the good of their neighbors, and they don't care whether or not they get a pat on the back for it. It's the difference between a heart that's being perfected by Jesus and a heart that is resistant to God. So when, when you meet needs, when you give, when you fast, Jesus says, don't do it like the hypocrites do it. Don't roll down your window. Don't put it on Facebook. Don't put a sign in your yard. Don't announce it to anyone else. Just do it quietly. Meet a need in love and say this, God loves me, and he was generous to me, and he loves you, and he wants to be generous to you too. I want to meet this need and just tell you how much God loves you. And if that opens a door to share the gospel even further, then do it. You know, the people on Palm Sunday, so many years ago, they worshipped King Jesus with their hands. They ripped palm branches off of trees and they waved them around. You guys did a little bit of that this morning, okay? They laid palm branches down before Jesus as he walked down the hill to die for their sins. But they didn't love him in their hearts. They soon became hypocritical of the things that they said to Jesus as they hailed him as king, because when they didn't get what they expected, they turned from palms and shouts of Hosanna to shouts of crucify him. They had the hands right, but not the heart. And the heart is very important. Jesus wants your heart. The hands will follow the heart, but the heart does not necessarily follow the hands. Jesus wants a disciple that has a heart to worship him. And out of that worship will come good deeds. The third thing, and he mentions this casually at the end of the passages, there are rewards. God is generous, right? He's an incredibly generous king. He's a giver. He likes to give. He consistently gives. He's not a taker. Jesus didn't come to earth and say, I want to take that and that and gimme, 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 gimme. I'm a taker, I'm a taker. 
He didn't walk around living like that. He walked around going, let me give you healing and let me give you hope and let me give you this and here, go fishing and on that fish, there's going to be a coin to pay your taxes and I'm going to give you and give you and give you and give you to the point that I will actually give my own life for you. He's a giver, not a taker. And a giver likes to give rewards. But Jesus says this, if you toot your own horn, that's all you're going to get. If you want the praise of man, you got it. Nothing more. Um, There are two kinds of rewards, earthly and heavenly. And scripture says in Matthew, we'll read this in two weeks, that we should store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Not treasures on earth. Treasures on earth fade. Treasures in heaven, they grow more glorious day in and day out. Those who seek personal fame, that's all that you will get for that deed. And when the personal fame has run out and people stop telling you how great you are for whatever it is that you have done, people are like drug addicts. They've got to go do something else to get more of that praise again. Don't live like that. That's all that you'll get. Jesus is saying this, do things secretly. Do things covertly. Be like a ninja. Okay? You see what I'm saying? You see a need, you sneak in, you meet the need, you sneak out. Nothing else. The person receiving your gifts will know, but your job is to use that moment to point to Jesus, to step aside so that the cross is visible, not you. Meeting a need in love and saying, God loves me. He's been generous to me. I want you to know how much God loves you. This is one of the ways he's showing that he loves you. Leverage the opportunity when you give to show how much God loves other people. Pray with that person. And when you're fasting, people shouldn't know. I was first taught to fast by someone who didn't fully understand fasting. Um, and, uh, and so I was taught to not keep my mouth shut about it. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to say, I'm so hungry. I'm going to die until I'm just, oh, I'm, so, I'm starving. Fasting is so hard, but so glorious, but it's so hard. I've actually said things like this, maybe not in that tone, but probably not far off either. That's not how fasting is supposed to be. Jesus says this, when you fast, no one should know that you're hungry. When you fast, make sure that you look good, that you look healthy. And, and he says it like this because people would fast for up to 40 days. Well, 40 days without food, you're going to look a little gaunt. You're going to lose some weight. Jesus says, compensate. Make sure you take a shower. Okay? Make sure that you put on a clean pair of clothes. Look as best as you can when you are fasting so that people don't know that you are doing this. Don't go around saying how hungry you are. Don't say, oh, I can't go to lunch with the office today. I'm holy fasting. <laughs> fasting for Jesus. I'll be hungry here alone. You go enjoy bacon cheeseburger. Okay? We do this. I, heard, I hear these things. This is why I say these things. Don't say, oh... That smells so good. I can't wait for my fast to be over so I can eat that. Jesus doesn't honor that. If your heart isn't there, then don't do it. And if your heart isn't there, then it's no secret to other people. Fast quietly, joyfully, and prayerfully. And intentionally, for the reasons that we discussed earlier. You should aim to get your whole life living and doing secret acts of service. You should consider yourself... A ninja for Jesus, walking around and seeing needs and meeting them and getting away before anyone knows what happened. 
You should aim to live your whole life hungering for Jesus, craving him and disciplining yourself in this hunger by fasting. You should live your whole life saying, not because of me, but because of him. John the Baptist said it really well. I must decrease and he must increase. Is that your heart this morning? You want to decrease so that Jesus can increase? Um, are you ready to decrease before King Jesus? The um, season prior to Easter has flown by. It's been Lent. Lent is often a season of fasting, right? Culturally, we fast from things like technology or sweets or so forth and so on. People pick their own things, and that's great. But people also have used the season of Lent and fasting as like a do-over for their New Year's resolution, right? Um, I, you know, I gave up on my New Year's. I didn't quite get it in January. That's okay. Lent's right around the corner. I'll pick it up then. And that's not what it's about. Lent is that season in which we prepare ourselves for Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Easter, okay? Um, and this, this season has flown by, and we're here on Palm Sunday, and we've sung hymns of celebration to King Jesus. It's closed our eyes and, and just pictured Jesus entering Jerusalem with all these palms. But prior to his triumphal entry, as he's on the top of the mount and he's looking down over Jerusalem, Scripture says that he was moved with compassion for the people that were there because he saw them like lost sheep without a shepherd, right? They were tossed about by waves of culture and false beliefs and emotion, and Jesus wanted to do something about that. He looked down upon the city, and he was moved because he saw their needs, and he wanted to meet their needs. He wanted to give and meet their needs. So he walked down that hill, and he walked into the city, and he walked through the events of Holy Week, and then he walked up to the cross, and he would meet the needs of all of mankind by giving his own life as payment for our sins. In doing so, Jesus fasted from life for three days, three nights. He took death and experienced the full wrath of God so that you don't have to. When he talks about giving and when he talks about fasting, and he says, when you, he's not asking you to do something he hasn't already done. He did it, and he did it to the highest and to the most for the glory of God and the good of his neighbors, which we are his neighbors. He didn't receive glory on earth while he did these things. His mission, his passion, his heart, his hands, they all gave up service in love, and very few people actually knew what Jesus was doing. Very few people actually understood the amount of giving that Jesus was doing and the fasting that he was about to endure. And Jesus was able to say, God loves me and he loves you too. And the way in which I'm going to demonstrate how much he wants to be generous to you is that I will be generous with my own life. He lived his entire life with no glory for himself on earth. Even though Hosanna, Hosanna, it was false glory. He knew it because they didn't love him in their hearts. Men turned on him. His friends abandoned him. He was beaten, made fun of, spit on, humiliated, stripped naked, chunks of flesh torn out of his body. 
ribs were exposed. He lost a copious amount of blood. And then he suffered and died on the cross alone next to criminals of which he was not. His reward was definitely not earthly. His reward was heavenly. His great act of giving was his life. And he did it for the glory of God and the good of mankind. And that is both the great joy and sorrow of Good Friday. Um, I used to wonder why it was called Good Friday. I grew up in Catholic Church, and they're like, let's celebrate Good Friday. And I'm like, that doesn't sound very good to me. And the reality is it's not. Our sin is not good. And the fact that Jesus died a horrible, painful, atrocious, unfair death on the cross, well, that's not necessarily good either. What was good was his self-sacrifice in our place for our sins. It's not fair that he died for us, but it's not fair in the best possible way for us. It's Good Friday because on that day, Jesus died for our sins and they were forgiven. 100%. Everything we have ever said, done, not said, not done, everything that has been done to us has all been forgiven. The greatest act of giving and fasting that ever was was done on Good Friday in the three days following. And we cannot have Easter without Good Friday. Churches that forget everything else in the Lenten season and consider Easter a great party, it's a work of the hands and not of the heart. Because you must worship the crucified Christ to worship the resurrected Christ on Easter. Good Friday is very good because it means that the wounds that he has heal our own. Isaiah says, by his stripes we are healed. He was crucified for us in our place, and this morning we need to wrestle with that. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll have a short reflective video, and we'll worship um, the Lord Jesus, who is our King, but our King who is on the cross, giving of himself for us. Lord, Sometimes I just wonder what it would have been like to walk that journey with you in that day. Um, To learn from you, to be one of those 12 disciples, to hear these words in person, to, to learn to apply them with your tender teaching, and then, Lord, to see people shout praise and to think it was all about to happen, and then the twist of fate, you on the cross. But, Lord, I'm thankful that you know better than I do And I'm thankful that your sacrifice covers my sins, because, Lord, there are many of them. You know that. And I'm thankful that you chose not to leave me separated from you, but to join me to you by forgiving me and giving me this opportunity to experience grace and freedom in you. And we give you all the praise today for being a king who has a plan that is better than anything that we could concoct. Lord, that your plan is steadfast and endures And you were the king that rode the donkey. You were the king that was born in the stable. You were the king that healed people. You were the king that entered into Jerusalem and was betrayed. You were the king that said, I will go to the cross and I'll do it voluntarily. I'm a giver. You were the king who on the cross said, Father, I give you my spirit. It is finished. And in that moment, Father, the greatest transaction that has ever occurred, occurred. 
his life for ours, a ransom one for many. And we're thankful this morning, and we worship you. We give you all the praise and all the glory. And we look forward to resurrection on Easter Sunday. Eternally grateful for what you did for us on Good Friday. Um, we're eternally grateful for all of the things you've done for us. You didn't just do Good Friday and Easter Sunday and then cease working in our lives. You, you came and you lived perfectly and you died perfectly in our place. And on Easter Sunday, we look forward to celebrating when you rose from the dead. And you conquered sin and death for all time. And now, you rule and reign from heaven. You are up there right now receiving the praises of your people. And we're thankful for that today. We're thankful that you are a good, loving, giving, generous God who paved the way for us to have life more than we could ever hope for. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory today. And we say it in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, who makes it all possible. Amen. Here's the benediction. Go and know that God is a giver, and he wants to give you all good things, but that after that, you are also called to be givers. So this week, find opportunities to give. Do so quietly and discreetly, and encourage others in the hope and joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen.